starting this morning our study series on the Lord's Prayer, where we've been going through this prayer line by line. And I think, I hope uh, that you, along with me, you know, I, one of the things that I think is just quite fun um, about this journey is that uh, sometimes you see things that you've never seen before, even as you're looking at something that you've seen again and again. And I think that dynamic is especially true with the Lord's Prayer, because for many of us, this prayer is familiar. Many of us grew up um, reciting this prayer, either individually or collectively as a part of worship. Um, And so in that sense, this prayer is familiar, um, intimately familiar for many of us. Uh, But at the same time, and what we've been trying to do in this study Um, is really kind of, maybe more so than normal, trying to dial back into the history, like put our our feet in the sandals of the original hearers in this prayer, uh, hearers of this prayer, and as best we can, um, hear what they may have heard in the prayer. And then, of course, most importantly, attempting to hear what it is that Jesus was actually saying. And so um, we've taken a number of angles on that basic idea Um, over the weeks, and this morning we're going to be doing that uh, with this next line in the prayer. Here it is. We're using Matthew's version, of course. Here it is, Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So just right there, just wait, 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 wait. Hold on. We need to ask a question. Does that mean that we can know God's will? Um, See, Jesus thinks we can know God's will. Jesus thinks God's will is good, desirable, and preferable over the current realities of this world. Now, this is a big deal to just interact with this a little bit because sometimes you hear folks talking as if God's will is unknowable. Sometimes that's actually laid down like a point of piety like if you're going to be really spiritually mature, if you're going to be really pious, you're going to acknowledge that we can't know God's will, and yet our pious duty is to, uh, is to go along and cooperate with it. And so this prayer becomes like a grand, pious punt that says, uh, whatever that might be, your will be done, that, that kind of idea. And you hear that stated in various ways. It comes out sometimes in our religious talk, our religious phrases, well, the Lord works in mysterious ways. You know, there's kind of that punt happening. Um, well, sometimes you hear people say this is maybe a more um, modern one, I guess, from my uh, assessment. Uh, you know, everything happens for a reason. You know, people say that. Uh, and then sometimes you'll say, hear people say maybe more overtly, well, you know, his ways are beyond our ways. What's at bottom, it seems to me, at, uh, of all of those phrases is that the underlying assumption in all these sayings is fundamentally that God's will is unknowable. And I want to suggest this morning that Jesus doesn't agree with this. <laughs> um, Jesus thinks God's will is knowable and that the more we come to know God and know his will, the more we will desire for God's will to become the experienced reality of life here in this world. Second general observation from this short phrase. This prayer means that Jesus thinks God's will is currently not the experienced reality of life here in this world. And again, everybody, this is a big deal. Uh, See, because many people 
tend to think of God sort of like an invisible puppet master who is pulling all the strings and orchestrating everything that happens in our lives. But this is to assume, essentially, that God's will is already being done, right? If that assumption is true, that would mean that God's will is already being done. And that assumption would make this prayer actually nonsensical. But this prayer can't be nonsense because Jesus gave it to us, and he's the smartest person that ever lived, right? So, no, this is not a grand, pious punt that we've been invited by Jesus to pray that essentially says whatever happens, happens, and it must be God's will. No, it's actually the opposite of that, everybody. This, this compressed, condensed cry, your will be done. This is a cry for something better to come about in this world. And that something better is called here the will of God. Before we continue, I want to just make a, a literary observation because I think that kind of helps. Uh, remember we talked about earlier in this study, we talked about how this prayer is given to us in poetic form. This is, this is a poem. It, it, and that even comes across in the English in terms of its rhythm and its uh, sections and its balance from start to finish and all that. But especially so in Greek, it even actually rhymes almost like a, like a chant. Um, uh, hallowed be the name of you. Um, become the kingdom of you. Be done the will of you. It has that even more rhythm in the original language. And so as a part of poetry, one of the things we know about poetic form is this idea of parallelism, and that's where two lines are repeated, two or more lines are repeated, uh, and they're either repeated to give an additional angle of meaning, essentially saying the same thing, or sometimes there can be um, uh, parallelism that is, that is a, a, in contrast, where one thing is stated and then the, the opposite or alternative idea is stated, like with a but. Um, but then sometimes there's a parallelism that can be thought of like a crescendo, where Yes, the same idea is being stated, but maybe even in step-up form with each repetition of the line. And so I want to suggest to you for your consideration that here in this case, with these first three lines of the Lord's Prayer, what we have is not only a parallelism, but it's a parallelism in the form of a crescendo, that name, kingdom, and will are all ways of saying the same thing but in a way, building in intensity with each repetition. That is to say, kingdom is a more specific way of saying that your name would be made holy. And so in keeping with that, then, to say your will be done, that would be even a more specific or perhaps even a more potent way of saying your kingdom come. So as we proceed this morning, that's the framework that I have in mind at least. And then a couple other observations that we talked about before because all these bear uh, on our study this morning. And that is the key word, if you're taking notes, just the key word here, one of the key words is participation. This prayer is meant to get down into our bones so that we begin to embody the prayer itself. Um, so that our lives more and more become the embodiment of this prayer. This is core, this is central, this is huge in the Lord's Prayer. So that as we say season after season of our lives together 
uh, in individually or corporately. So as, as we say again and again and again, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. The idea is that over time that would get down so deep on the inside of us that we become the collaborative participants in the grand project of God to make his name holy in his world house to cause his kingdom to come and his will to be done. And then uh, this particular line, it, it, on earth as it is in heaven, um, it is connected to your will be done. But again, I'm talking this parallel crescendo idea so that the idea is that this, uh, this line, on earth as it is in heaven, really connects the first half of the prayer to the second half of the prayer that deals with bread, debt, and temptation. And so in that sense, make your name holy, your kingdom come, your will be done. All three of those are in consideration when we talk about on earth as it is in heaven. So this prayer, once again, is about earth. This prayer is about the healing, the transformation of earth, life here and now on earth. It is significant that when Jesus gave his disciples, and by extension, us, when he gave us this prayer, which would have been very common for a first century rabbi, uh, to hand off to his disciples uh, a concentrated, um, focused deposit of what it is that that rabbi stands for. This is a very common practice uh, in first century Judaism and perhaps beyond that, I don't know. But um, it is significant that when Jesus, the rabbi, gives to his followers, that would be including us now, um, the prayer that he gives us is not about going to heaven when you die. It's not about some someday out there in a disembodied eternal future. This prayer is about here and now. It is an announcement. It is a pronouncement of our participation with God in his divine agenda for the healing transformation of this world. Those are some crucial observations about this prayer, each part along the way. So for today, our critical question is, what is God's will like? When we say, God, we want your will to be done on earth as in heaven, what is the quality, the character, what is the tone and feel of God's will? And suddenly when you say it that way, you can see that this is really another way of asking about the character of God. What is God's character like? What is God like? These are great questions, important questions, questions that we orbit around, um, around here quite often because, again and again, I'll say it, how you answer that question essentially determines how it is that you proceed in life in terms of your uh, thoughts, your uh, hopes and dreams, your communication, your interaction with others, on and on and on. For example, I read a book recently by a Christian pastor uh, who wrote and published a book. It was published in electronic format, obviously, um, getting, getting a book out quickly, so he just did it electronically. Um, and it was all about God and the coronavirus. And in this book, this pastor said uh, quite seriously that God was giving some people the coronavirus because of their sinfulness. Now, 
This is clearly an irresponsible thing to say. It's clearly an abusive thing to say. But importantly for our discussion today, saying something like that, everybody, is actually rooted in a particular understanding of the character of God. Namely, that God's character and therefore God's will, and here's kind of two big words, but we need them. Um, God's character and God's will is punitive and retributive. What do we mean by the word punitive? Well, the, the, the guts of that word is the, just the idea of punishment. So, so to say that the belief that God's character is punitive would mean that God requires and inflicts punishment as a response to wrongdoing, even to the point of giving some people, in the case of this author, uh, a potentially lethal disease. What do we mean by the word, by the word retributive? Well, Retribution, it essentially means uh, payback for a wrong done. Retribution, the idea is you did something wrong, committed some offense, and now I'm going to take vengeance upon you. Uh, it is payback time, right? It's time for you to pay the price for the offense committed. And so this writer sees God's character as punitive and retributive, and so he finds it natural and maybe even an indicator of his spiritual maturity um, to say and write something as horrible and as abusive as to say that God is giving certain people a lethal virus. This is clearly a mean-spirited thing to say, but he can't see that because his words flow from his deeply held belief about the nature of what God is like. You see what I mean? This is a big deal. So, and I say that to say, of course, this particular Christian pastor is not alone in his view of these aspects of God's character. There are many, many people, in fact, through the centuries um, who have uh, seen God's character in this way. Well, the Apostle Paul, for example, he went through his own metamorphosis on this question, right? When we first meet the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts, uh, he is busy persecuting his fellow Jews, those, those among his fellow Jews who believe that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. Um, Paul is busy persecuting them because he sees himself as a servant of God, inflicting this kind of punitive retribution against these, what he sees as faithless Jews. And then what happens to Paul? He encounters the reality of the one true God in Christ on the Damascus Road. And long story short, Paul is so deeply transformed by the encounter of the actual nature of God that in contrast to the way uh, he spent his life when we first met him, he ends at the end of his life, the persecutor becomes the persecuted who dies refusing to retaliate against his enemies. And so... We see in the life story of the Apostle Paul, um, the beginning of Paul's, uh, the story of Paul for us, um, he begins with this retributive kind of God image and through his own um, encounter with the self-revelation of God in Christ, he lives the rest of his life both preaching and modeling an image of God that is unconditionally loving and generatively gracious. And so, some observations. Now, Let's step a little further. Here's kind of a fun place to start. Uh, you're aware that um, Matthew is not the only biblical author who gives us 
what we call the Lord's Prayer. Uh, Luke also gives us a version of the Lord's Prayer, and I have it for you this morning. I want to read it, uh, and you hear it, and we'll make a couple of observations. Here's, here's Luke's version from Luke chapter 11, verse 2. Jesus said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone indebted to us and do not bring us to the time of trial. Okay. Now, there's enough there, enough continuity with Matthew's version for us to recognize this as the Lord's Prayer. And yet, it's clearly different here in Luke. Different, that is, from Matthew's version. And one of the differences, and here's my purpose for bringing it up today, one of the differences in Luke's version is that Luke's version is missing our line that we're focused on today, your will be done. That's interesting. What's even more interesting is to see that Luke actually does give us this particular prayer, your will be done, but he does not give us this prayer, your will be done, in the context of the Lord's Prayer. Luke gives us this prayer later, quite some time later, in the life and ministry of Jesus. Luke gives us this particular prayer on the lips of Jesus himself praying this prayer. Specifically, Luke gives us Jesus praying this prayer on Thursday night, of Holy Week in the Garden of Gethsemane. Here it is, Luke chapter 22, verse 40. When he reached the place, he said to them, pray that you may not come into the time of trial. Then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. So there it is. Luke gives us this prayer in the context of Jesus' own prayer. And what is the context in which Jesus prays this prayer, not my will, but yours be done? Well, the context, of course, is the crucifixion of Christ. Jesus prays, your will be done, and then the events that unfold are Jesus' arrest, his trial, his flogging, and Roman execution. So question, how is it possible that this could be the will of God? Jesus was completely innocent, I'll remind you. His crucifixion, therefore, was the unjust execution of a completely innocent man. So how then could God be truly good and will such a horrific miscarriage of justice? This is an important question. How then, or in what sense, could we say that the crucifixion of Christ was the will of God? You know, for roughly the last 1,000 years, most Christians would say a simple yes to the question, was the crucifixion of Christ the will of God? Most Christians would say a simple yes to the question, yes, the execution of Christ was the will of God. And then they would articulate how it is and in what sense the crucifixion of Christ was 
the will of God. And for most Christians, at least for the last 1,000 years, here's how the thinking would go. Humans have sinned against God, and God wants to forgive us, but God cannot just forgive. There has to be justice before God can forgive, or God's justice must first be satisfied before God can forgive. God's justice requires that sin must be punished before it can be forgiven. And so God sent Jesus to be punished in our place for our sin. That is the meaning of the crucifixion. Jesus was punished in our place for our sin, so now God can forgive us. This has become the most widely held perspective on the meaning of the cross of Christ. And this would be the way in which most Christians, at least for the last 1,000 years, would answer the question, how is it that the crucifixion of Christ could have been the will of God? The question is, where, where did this understanding come from? There's nowhere in the Bible where all of this is spelled out, that's for sure. Um, furthermore, if you listen to Jesus talk about his own death, he talks about participation and collaboration, not substitution. Jesus said, in fact, overtly, I want you who follow me, I want you to take up your cross and follow me. Jesus never said, I'm going to Jerusalem to die on your behalf. He said, I'm going to Jerusalem and I want you to take up your cross and follow me. Same for Paul, over and over again, I am crucified with Christ. Paul says things like that all the time. I die daily. Paul's theme is collaboration with Christ, participation in Christ again and again and again. And so, where did this idea come from? And this morning, I just want to say, actually, the framework for this substitutionary thinking about the meaning of the cross was actually born around the turn of the first millennium. That is about 1,000, 1,098 or so. It was first presented by a monk turned bishop named Anselmo de Osta, now better known as St. Anselm of Canterbury. But let's back up a little bit and take a, take a run at this. I want to give you two stories from history around about that same time, um, uh, 1090, 1095 or so. In November of 1095, a man by the name of Otto de Lagari gave a speech to a group of other religious leaders uh, at a gathering known as the Council of Clermont in south-central France. And Mr. de Lagari, a cleric himself, in his speech, he gave to the gathered group a grave and graphic account of what Muslims were doing to Christians at that time in Jerusalem. And near the conclusion of his remarks, Mr. DeLaguerre um, said these words. He finally instructed the group. He said, enter upon the road to the Holy Sepulcher and wrest that land from the wicked race and subject it to yourselves. And the effect of DeLaguerre's speech was that at the conclusion of his speech, all the other clerics in the room began to chant, it is the will of God. It is the will of God. Otto de Lagari is better known as Pope Ur Urban II. 
And that speech became the birth of what is now known as the First Crusade, which started with the persecution of Western Jews in and around Europe and ended with the slaughter of many, many Muslims in the East. So that's right, kids. The Crusades um, began with a crowd of religious leaders chanting, it is the will of God. It is the will of God. And that's one vision of the will of God. Another very important cleric, churchman, and a contemporary of Delagory, Pope Urban II, is St. Anselm of Canterbury. Anselm was a philosopher, a theologian. He was a monk and a bishop, mystic and a saint. And Anselm too, like Delagory, Anselm wanted to defend the faith of Christ against its Jewish and Muslim opponents. But Anselm chose to go about this not through the use of warfare, but by the use of logic. And so he wrote a little book, uh, which quickly became one of the most popular works of Christian theology, perhaps of all time. And in this little book, St. Anselm sets out to defend the doctrine of the incarnation, most specifically, um, against the objections of Jewish people and Muslim people, both of whom, to this day, reject the claim that God could become man, and both of whom, by the way, in his book, Anselm calls infidels. He says in the introduction to his book that he wants to persuade them by the use of reason and logic alone. And he even says that in, in going about this and writing this book, he says he will leave Christ out of view as if nothing has ever been known about him. And so Anselm says that he's going to start from scratch and build his case from the very beginning using nothing but, as he says, absolute reasons and plain reasoning. His book is called Cur Deus Homo. That's the Latin title. It's translated typically into English as why the God-man. It's a question. Or why did God become man? It is from this little book, everybody, that we received the theology of substitutionary atonement or vicarious suffering, the vicarious suffering of Christ. These are ideas that weren't known among Christians prior to this book. It was first published in 1098, which was during Pope Urban II's first crusade. Quite frequently in his book, Cur Deus Homo, Anselm mentions the will of God. In fact, many have said that Anselm's argument essentially rests upon his own assertions about the will of God. Here's a couple of quotes. It is then plain that no one can, can honor or dishonor God as he is in himself. But the creature, as far as he is concerned, appears to do this when he submits or opposes the will of God. Another. So heinous is our sin whenever we knowingly oppose the will of God, even in the slightest thing, since we are always in his sight and he always enjoins it upon us not to sin. One more. Since then, the will of God, 
does nothing by any necessity, but of his own power. And the will of that man, Christ, was the same as the will of God. He died not of necessity, but only of his own power. These are just some examples. The book is shot through with Anselm's notion of the will of God. So throughout the book, Anselm builds his argument step by step, and he shows how and why it is that the incarnation, and then which is intimately connected with the crucifixion of Christ, were the will of God. And basically, you are familiar with Anselm's logic, even if you aren't familiar with Anselm's book. He essentially says that God cannot simply forgive sin without any punishment at all. That would mean that God is indifferent to evil, that God doesn't really care about evil, doesn't really care about the seriousness of sin one way or the other. But that would be impossible because he says God is a just God. God must therefore will the adequate punishment for human sin. Um, and only the simultaneously human and divine Jesus Christ is the appropriate victim who can satisfy the just punishment for sin that God requires. And so this explains why God willed the incarnation of Christ and why God willed the crucifixion of Christ so that God could get his required satisfaction for the offense of human sin. Anselm builds this logic step by step, and it was obviously convincing because it caught on quickly and widely. But for this morning's purposes, I want to ask you to notice two presuppositions that Anselm simply assumes and asserts, practically without um, debate or consideration. The first is that God requires punishment in order to maintain justice. Here's a quote along those lines from Curtis Omo. It's not proper for God to pass over sin unpunished. It's not fitting that God should take sinful man without an atonement. This cannot be effected unless satisfaction be made, which none but God can make and none but man ought to make. So it is necessary for the God-man to make it. So Anselm just simply asserts that it wouldn't be proper uh, for God to forgive sin without first requiring due punishment as satisfaction to his own justice. But what if Anselm is wrong about that? What if that assumption, that assertion is simply wrong? As a matter of fact, this is actually a conversation that is found in the pages of the Bible itself. In fact, the book of Job is a poetic treatise on the subject, on the question. And the book of Job actually argues for a very different perspective on the matter than what Anselm assumes and asserts. You see, in the book of Job, and some of you are familiar with this, the book of Job, um, Job's friends take essentially the same position as St. Anselm. They say, Job, you're suffering because you've sinned somehow, and so what you're suffering is the just punishment from our just God. That is the explanation for your suffering. God is punishing you justly. That's what Job's friends say to Job over and over and over again throughout the book of Job. And then finally, at the end of the story, 
God speaks. He rebukes Job's friends for lying about his character. It's a pity that far too few people have stuck with this, well, I would just say it is an ultra-long poem, the book of Job, but it's a pity more people haven't stuck with the entire story to see what the poet is saying there. And then, of course, there's Jesus himself, right, on the subject. What did Jesus say? You've heard it said, an eye for an eye. What is that? Justice, one for one, retribution. You've heard it said, eye for an eye. Yes, we've heard it said, and we've seen it written. Makes total sense to us, Jesus. Then he continues, but I say to you, what? Turn the other cheek. What? How unjust. What do you mean, turn the other cheek? Love your enemies, he said. Oh, what in the world? How can we clear that bar? No, Jesus, I'm not telling you, I'm not giving you a bar to clear. I'm telling you, that's what God is like. So when you love your enemies, you are functioning as children of your Father in heaven. So Jesus doesn't say, love your enemies just to give us a higher moral bar to clear. He says, love your enemies because that's what God is like. This is his nature, this is his character. And yet Anselm assumes, presumes something very different about the character of God. The second assumption or presupposition that I want to point out about Anselm's work um, is that Anselm assumes that God is mostly like a feudal lord from his own time and place in turn of the millennium Europe. Um, Throughout the book, Um, Anselm draws upon that cultural phenomenon and applies that to God. In fact, Anselm's central and core metaphor for God is a turn-of-the-millennium European feudal lord. And see, in Anselm's time and place, feudal lords were like their own judges. Um, They were both the law and the penal system in their respective realms. And if you violated the particular feudal lord in question, then that lord would demand satisfaction from you as payback for the wrong that you committed. In fact, if that feudal lord did not require some sort of retribution, then that feudal lord would be seen as weak and would fall into disrespect and then that would, what would that turn into? That would become, make it more likely for some other peasant to then run over that particular feudal lord. And so there's no way a feudal lord in Anselm's uh, time would dare overlook an offense and simply forgive out of sheer grace. That would be dishonorable. It would be to invite only more chaos within the realm of that particular feudal lord. And so this is Anselm's fundamental baseline metaphor for thinking about what God is like, the character of God. And it's actually quite sad to me to think about how things might have turned out differently for so many Christians if Anselm had chosen a different foundational metaphor for God. What if, what if like Jesus, Anselm had chosen to think of God as a father? as a loving Jewish householder. Think of how differently his theology of Christ and of the cross might have turned out. And by the way, I'll just say this as a point of interest. While we Protestants are usually quite proud to assert 
all the ways in which we are not Catholic. <laughs> um, in regard to these questions that we're dealing with today, um, we Protestants actually carried forward exactly what Anselm had given us long before the Protestant Reformation came around some 400 years later, plus or minus. And so on these particular questions, everybody, Christians on both sides of the Reformation remain in lockstep. Anselm's work predates the Reformation, was quite popular, and Luther and others carried it forward uh, uh, unedited. And so while these two stories, first of all, Pope Erdogan II, and secondly, Anselm of Canterbury, while these two stories from history seem like very different stories, and indeed, on the surface, they are two very different stories, they actually share one foundation in common. You see, both of these projects rely on the assumption that God's will is punitive and retributive. Now, let's take them one by one. Today, most Christians would, agree, would, would disagree with Pope Urban II and would insist that the Crusades were clearly not the will of God. In fact, most Christians today would agree that the Crusades were probably the all-time low point in our shared story uh, as a faith. Instead, we would say that those Christians should have, should have loved their enemies or found some peaceful solution to the issues or some such alternative you know, solution. But we would insist that God surely, certainly did not will the slaughter of all those people. And so today, most Christians would strongly disagree with Pope Urban II and those who cooperated with him. But on the other hand, most Christians today would agree with Anselm and say that God did, in fact, will the execution of Jesus. And the basis for that assertion would be with Anselm that God requires punishment for sin. And so... Pope Urban II and Anselm of Canterbury actually shared the same perspective on God's character and therefore on God's will. And one of them brought us the Crusades while the other brought us substitutionary atonement theory. Both projects were driven by the same perspective on what God is like. Does everybody see that? Namely, that God's character is punitive and retributive. That's what those two clerics agreed upon. Even though they led projects that were quite different on the surface, at the core, they actually agreed on what God's character is like. But on the other hand, we Christians, we believe that God is a God of grace. We believe that God loves with an unconditional love. And so, to say the obvious, everybody, love that must be satisfied with the death of an innocent man before it can love or forgive, to say the obvious, that is not unconditional love. That's a love that's very, very conditional. Grace that must first be satisfied with the bloody death of an innocent man before it can or will show grace is actually not grace at all. That 
is a description of anti-grace. That's the description of retribution, not grace. And so for me, along with many others, I say that I deeply appreciate Anselm's motivation and his intent, his desire for his project. But his argument, in the end, has way too many unintended consequences concerning the character and nature of God. In fact, in his determined effort to defend the incarnation through the use of logic and reason, he actually ends up ignoring and obliterating the actual full self-revelation of God in Christ, who is the incarnation of the divine. And so in Anselm's, the great irony is that in Anselm's effort to defend the incarnation, he actually ignores the incarnation. (laughs) One more thought here. For nearly a thousand years now, since Anselm's book, we have essentially smuggled in a punitive and retributive God image into our souls, even as we talk about and sing about God's love and God's grace. We talk about God's love. We talk about God's grace. But then when it comes to how we understand the meaning of the cross, this central most symbol of our faith, in that context, we insist that God's character is actually punitive and retributive. And so, right, the cross was necessary in order to accommodate the nature of God. And so everybody, for nearly a thousand years now, most Christians have inherited a God image that is at bottom punitive and retributive. So let me ask the question. What happens when the deity that you worship is punitive and retributive? Well, here's my answer to that. With every encounter with that deity, you are actually reinforcing a punitive and retributive inner self, ultimately. You are lodging retribution into the deepest place in your own soul. And I say, enough of that. Let's get on board with Jesus' own understanding of the nature of God and see what happens in terms of our own spiritual formation. Let's make that shift and see if we find the kingdom coming in richer measure in big ways and small ways. Let's worship the God who actually loves his enemies and see what that does deep on the inside of our hearts, minds, and souls. And so, how can we say with Luke that the cross of Christ was God's will? First, let me say that Jesus said, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that you might have life to the fullest. So, it is the thief, says Jesus, who kills, never God. God is the author and sustainer of life. So, killing is never the will of God. How then can we say that the crucifixion of Christ was the will of God? Well, try this. 
It was God's will for Jesus to remain steady and steadfast in his peaceable and healing mission no matter what. And so when Jesus' opponents turned violent, Jesus stayed steady. And in doing so, he revealed to us the true character of God. In the face of abuse and violence, Jesus did not retaliate. He does not strike back. Why did Jesus say, turn the other cheek? Because that's what God is actually like. He does not take eye for eye. Instead, he turns the other cheek. He loves his enemies. This is the true character of God. This is the will of God. It's always God's will for us to pursue peace by peaceable means. Love, someone has said, love is opposed to everything that is opposed to love. (laughs) And so, on Good Friday, Jesus remained on mission, demonstrating and embodying the will of God even in the face of hell itself being unleashed against him. And so, yes, Good Friday was the will of God, not the killing, but the refusal to retaliate. So your will be done. When we pray this prayer, your will be done. What do we mean? Well, let's back up and put it together in this poetic parallelism in crescendo. Our Father in heaven, householder of the world house who is rooted in reality that is whole, fixed, and fit together that we call heaven, the dimension of reality which is always and already shalom. Make your name holy. Make your world house into a household that reveals and elevates the goodness of your character, a world where anyone can see the goodness of the householder by looking around anywhere in his world house. Your kingdom come. Bring about your alternative way of ordering the world. Cause the style and feel of your loving reign to come into being. Your will be done. We want the good, loving justice and restorative righteousness that you so deeply desire to become the experienced reality. Where? Here on earth, as it is in heaven. As things are always and already in the perfected dimension of reality that we call heaven, may things become that way here and now. In this world, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let me pray for you. We're going to sing a closing song. We'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father.